yourself. You're always striving to be a, become a better version of yourself every day. What does that look like? Let's talk about yourself a year from now or three years from now or five years from now. I want you to visualize what your appearance looks like. Are you physically fit? I want you to visualize the financials that you have. What's your financial situation five years from now? Is there a lot of zeros in your bank account? Are you out of debt? Are you living in a different house? Does your lifestyle look completely different? Are your friends a lot different by this point? Start to really visualize who that better version of you looks like to you. And it's subjective because only you can de decide what that better version of you looks like. This is American Real, where we aim to inspire, empower, and enlighten you through the stories of our guests. Here's your host, Roger Brooks. This is American Real. I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is Tony Watley. You are a business mentor, speaker, best-selling author, and podcast host who is best known as co-founder of LS1 Tech, an online automotive community which grew into the largest of its kind with over 300,000 registered members. You sold that business for millions in only five years as your part-time business. In addition, by trade, you are an engineer and once led a successful corporate career with over 27 years of experience in the oil and gas industry. In 2015, after a near-death experience while racing cars, you decided to focus on building businesses full-time, leaving behind a multiple six-figure salary to do what you love. Tony, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Roger. It's an honor to be on the show or recognize a lot of your former guests. We've shared some of those ourselves, and man, it's a, it's a privilege and honor to be on a show that's really regarded at that level. No, it's my pleasure. And look, I know you're most of the time or a lot of the times on this side of the mic. So uh, it's a it's a privilege for me to have you on the show today and to really get into uh, something that I know you're passionate about, and that is storytelling. As you know, our tagline is everyone has a story. And I'd love to give the backstory behind our guests, and hopefully we'll get to that today. But before we get started, um, there's one thing I wanted to ask you. Uh, on your website, you outline your core values, which is wonderful. And that's your 365-driven website. Uh, but there was one that stood out for me. They're all very important, but one stood out for me. And it says this, good isn't good enough when better is possible. Good isn't good enough when better is possible. Tony, tell us why that core value is so important to you. I would say that that's a result of my disciplinarian childhood. I had very disciplinarian parents. My mom, Japanese immigrant. I was actually born in Japan on a military base. My dad was a Vietnam combat vet, the U.S. Marines. And so my mom was very disciplinarian about education. And to give you guys, the listeners here, an example of that, I did not miss a single day of school from kindergarten through graduation. So I'm used to showing up every day. And literally, if I wasn't dead, my rear end was getting on that bus. And that's how much she valued education because a, a woman in Japan in her era, the baby boomer generation, they often didn't get to finish school. They basically went to junior high and they got plucked out of the school system where the boys got to continue and the girls went to go work in the farms. So that's why she really valued education because she didn't get that when she was that age. Now, my dad, military gunnery sergeant, you know, I got all the other forms of discipline in that regard. So 
when you start to think about that, you, you want to be a, a competitive person. You want to go do things your best. And I'm, I'm very tuned in and focused about what I want to work on. And I try to be the best I can. And I understand that there's mental or physical limitations and a lot of things that we pursue, but I also try to do my best. And I've always been competitive and usually beating against myself. I, I don't really try to compare myself with other people. I mean, we always fall into that habit. But for me, if I know that I left some extra things on the table, so to speak, or left something on the field that I could have done better, then it always eats at me, right? And that's that's in almost everything I've ever done in my life. Now, I don't, I'm not really hard on myself to be the best. I just want to be as best as I can be. And that that's just, just don't do things half-ass. That's all it comes down to is don't do things half-ass when you know that better is possible. And has it always been like that for you? I know you, you mentioned, uh, you know, your, your upbringing, but how long did it take you in your career to get to that place? Or was it there from the beginning? I think it's always been there for the beginning for me. And I think that when this really goes back to identity shifts, right? I know that you've had some amazing guests on the show that talk about how we identify ourselves. And if you identify yourself as somebody that shows up every day and does their best, and you start to repeat that and you start to identify who you truly are as one of that description, you will definitely start to show up and execute and doing things your best. You're not going to cut corners. You're not going to be lazy. You're not going to do things just half-assed. It's just, it's, that's one of the identities I always had. So when I thought about like going to school, I would probably say when I was younger, going to school every day and having perfect attendance, it probably bothered me because I got to see other kids screwing off and taking days off and doing things and, and having fun and going on vacation in the middle of the school year and stuff like that. But after a period of years, I actually started to take pride that I had never missed school and that I actually had perfect, perfect attendance. And this was probably by junior high range. And so I realized that this is something that sets me apart from all the other people and that it's not that hard to do. I just have to show up. And so you start to identify as someone that shows up and then you start to reinforce that good behavior. So whatever you identify as, if you think that you're an athlete, for example, I was always an athlete but I let myself go physically in my mid thirties, I started making a lot of money and I got kind of lazy and started gaining weight. And I started having aches and pains that I never experienced before. But when I look in the mirror, I didn't see the athlete that I identified myself as. So age 40, pivotal age, I started to get more back into fitness and I'm almost 49. I'm actually physically stronger than I've ever been in, even in my athlete years. But that's because I identify as an athlete and I identify as somebody that goes to the gym every day and, you start to reinforce those habits. It's so important to do that. And when you talk about identity, Tony, are you one of these people uh, that believes in the law of attraction, for example, that you, you actually think and believe it and manifest it before it actually takes place? Yeah, it's really strange, Roger. I, I operated in that mode before I even knew what law of attraction was. And actually, when I read the book, The Secret, several years probably I was I was probably 42 43 years old I finally read the secret and it wasn't a revelation for me it was more of a here's the way it is and man I'm reading this and it's like that's how I think wait a minute is this not how everybody thinks and the reason is because my mom was always good about having you know we called them dream boards but that's what a vision board is we think about that nowadays but when I was a kid I literally had a cork board above my desk where I would draw pictures and build model cars and airplanes. And, and she would just tell me, go get some magazines and stuff that you like, get some scissors, cut out things you want and just thumbtack them to this cork board. So I grew up literally with vision boards in my room 
since I was a kid. And I just thought this was normal, right? But this is what my mom had learned through her Japanese culture. They believe in things. They believe in seeing things and being at one with nature and respect and honor and having visualizations and dreams. So I just thought that this was normal and every kid in the entire United States was the same way. And I've always done that. I've always imagined where I could be and what I can achieve. And I didn't let people talk me out of doing things that I knew that I had the confidence to go pursue. And so when I started to see the personal development space, really in my late 30s, I started to see evidence of the stuff that I'd already been living with my entire life and the vision board and, and law of attraction. These things are things that I finally had a name for, but I'd always operated in that. So, I, yeah, I definitely believe in those things because I've seen too many of these things occur and repeat in my lifetime over and over and over. What do we say to those people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s who didn't grow up like that? that didn't have the benefit of kind of knowing what it was before they really knew what it was? Man, it's a, it's a really profound question. And I think that the best way to get ahead of that is to learn some awareness of why that actually works. So when we visualize ourselves as a, let's say a better version of you, we hear that it's pretty common. What's a better version of yourself? You're always striving to be a, become a better version of yourself every day. What does that look like? Let's talk about yourself a year from now or three years from now or five years from now. I want you to visualize what your appearance looks like. Are you physically fit? I want you to visualize the financials that you have. What's your financial situation five years from now? Is there a lot of zeros in your bank account? Are you out of debt? Are you living in a different house? Does your lifestyle look completely different? Are your friends a lot different by this point? Start to really visualize who that better version of you looks like to you. And it's subjective because only you can de decide what that better version of you looks like, your goals. And here's the thing. Whenever you come up to any decision in life, no matter if it's the food on the end of your fork in that meal, or you're deciding to skip the gym that day because you don't feel like it, or you're not making those callbacks and doing your follow-ups in your business, or you're not doing things to position yourself to create more opportunity, any single decision, no matter how small, when you come to that little fork in the road, no matter how size it is, ask yourself, what would the better version of me do in this moment? Would the better version of me eat this crappy meal and sit on the couch or would they eat healthy and go to the gym and be fit and actually do some things to move their progress forward to get themselves out of the situation they're currently in? So it's all about decision making in real time, but governing yourself based on the future version of yourself, almost like your future version of yourself is your coach, the thing that's sitting on your shoulder. And here's the thing that happens, okay? When you start to operate and think like the better version of yourself, the future version of yourself, soon enough, you become that person. It's just, it's inevitable. You can't escape that. So let's talk about some examples here because I, I love this conversation because it's been my trajectory, you know, say for the last 15 years. Uh, but before that, I was all over the place, right? Um, what was it like for you as you started to visualize things um, and then actually hit those goals? So the physical you, let's use that one as an example. Were you, were you surprised that you were able to accomplish that or did you know that you would be able to accomplish that? I, I was not surprised about the physical fitness. Uh, to me, a lot has to do with the people that you surround yourself with, whether that's family or friends. They're usually enablers or they're people that tolerate what you're giving to them right now. And they don't really 
you know, here's the thing, like everybody wants to be accepted for who they are, but my best friends now don't accept me for who I am today because they know that I'm on an improvement journey. They accept the future version of myself. So you want to be around people who talk about, hey, imagine when, instead of the people that talk about, hey, remember when. When you surround yourself with a bunch of people that just talk about remember when and the good old days, in their mind, they've already peaked. It's pretty sad. I mean, they're the Uncle Ricos of the world talking about how they threw a touchdown pass in high school or their 45-year-old dude that's talking about being a Division One athlete in college. It's like, that's all the used to you be. You know, that that doesn't matter. That's that's accomplishments and no doubt. But when you think that you peaked and your best years are behind you, you don't want to surround yourself with those people because that's going to start to cloud your mind. You're going to start to think, yeah, those were the good old days and I wish we could go back and remember when, remember when, remember when. So. When you start to surround yourself with people with a growth mindset, they're going to talk about imagine when they're going to see the potential within you that you may not necessarily see for yourself. And that's very important because we all have self-doubt. We all have artificial ceilings of belief of things that we can accomplish. But when we start to push ourselves by being around the right people that can see that future potential, maybe even bigger than you, they're not going to tolerate who you are today. They're going to push you to become the person you're supposed to be. So. Dude, I, I knew the being the fitness thing when I, when I was in my late 30s, I talk about lower back pains and my knee from injury and football and shoulder issues. And, and they were all convenient excuses for not wanting to exercise. I knew I wanted to be fit. I felt like an athlete inside, but I didn't look like that or I feel like it. And although I didn't gain a lot of weight, I gained a lot of fat and not a lot of muscle. So I was weaker and a and little bit heavier, but I was just shaped completely different. And I remember you know, I would say something like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're getting older. We don't heal like we used to. And you're standing around with a bunch of dudes that are out of shape and they're all just reinforcing. Yeah, yeah, man, we don't heal like we used to. And, oh, you shouldn't lift those heavy weights. You're going to hurt your back. And like they say things like that to hold you down at the same level as them, because if they see you starting to climb and improve and do things that they know that's within their capability, but not within their desire, they're going to start to say those little passive aggressive things to try to keep you down at the same level. So you wow. got to be really careful about who you surround yourself with and don't take the excuses because we all have a handful of excuses we can deploy at any time. But why? You know, I, I'm deadlifting 500 pounds. I bench over 300 pounds. I, I squat over 400 pounds. I'm in the thousand club combined to the big lifts, but I only weigh 185 pounds and, and I'm almost 49 guys. And I don't have surgeries and all these different things. I just exercise and I eat healthy. Wow, Tony. And for those guys and gals that are listening, that are in that place right now, they feel stuck. They have that group around them that they feel like they can't escape. Provide a tip or two. How do you, how do you overcome that? How do you begin to overcome that? And is it as simple as just saying one day, okay, I'm, I'm no longer doing this. I'm no longer going to be that person. Or is it, is it something more than that from a mental standpoint? We get what we tolerate. It comes down to that. And most people will surf Instagram or YouTube or podcasts or read books. And basically they're always looking for breadcrumbs of motivation, right? Because maybe they don't feel like doing something. So they're always looking for a dose of endorphins and motivation to maybe feel a little bit better. Maybe it's going to encourage me to go do that. But here's the main difference between average people who get average results and successful people. Successful people operate and execute when they don't feel like it. They're results driven. They're not motivation driven. They want the results and they know that it's going to take hard work, time, consistency, 
discipline to achieve that result or that reward that they have set for themselves. So successful people simply execute without feeling like it. So if you're always looking for motivation, think about that. That's very temporary. It's fleeting. We feel good for maybe 30 minutes to an hour because it's motivating or we heard some cool song or read some inspiring quote or read a book and we want to share that. But then what is the result of that? Maybe you gain some new knowledge, but what are you going to do with it? We want results when we're successful. So I'll tell you that here's a game for the fitness aspect of this. I've never left the gym since working out since age 14. I've never left the gym one time having regret having been there that day. Never once. Even when I injured myself in certain circumstances, I've never left that gym regretting having gone that day. And so you know, if I know that as a fact, when I don't feel like the, going to the gym, which is half the time, literally, like half the time I don't want to go, I just rest on that fact that, hey, when I leave later on, I know that I'll never have regretted being there that day. So you have to think about that future version of yourself, even if it's a couple hours, and understand that you're not going to regret going. So get off your rear end and go. It seems like you were in a place, a really good place financially. You obviously worked your way up. You're an engineer by trade. You did this for 27 years in the, in the oil and gas industry. And I've, I've heard you talk about that, you know, they invested in you, those, those companies that you worked for over the years. You had millions of dollars of value and knowledge that you gained from all these seminars. And, and I believe there's a lot of people like you, myself included, that have this has happened to over the years. But at some point, um, and, I, and I'd like to get to this backstory if we can, you, you started thinking about a different path. Um, Talk about, if you can, Tony, your career, uh, how how you made it through those 27 years and, and the growth and, and all that, uh, obviously excelling, but then turning that into your side hustle, uh, having these side businesses that did really well, and then eventually, um, you know, breaking through and doing this full time. Yeah, that's a it's a interesting story i think when you're living my life real time you don't realize how odd it is but now looking back it is definitely a, a unique story um i wanted to go to school just like everybody else i grew up lower middle class my parents didn't have a lot of money after the military my dad worked chemical refineries here in houston and my mom worked in the cafeterias at public schools serving food to children her entire career so we always lived in flip houses we had to make sure that we valued and respected the things that we have, even no matter how small they are. So I learned to fix things rather than discard things. And when it came time to go to school, I was going to be the first one in my family on both sides to actually go to a university. We didn't have the money. So I basically worked full-time construction in the chemical refineries and laboring. And I was a stick rod welder. I was shoveling ditches, literally, like we hear about digging ditches, like I did that. And I insulated pipe and I was painting things. And doing whatever I could. I was waiting tables on the nights that I wasn't going to school. So it took me seven years to go through school and I went full-time working and I would go to school at night and I would sleep about three to four hours a night tops. And, and it was hell, you know, that seven years was that 24 seven hustle and grind that I'd lived through. And I was broke. I was sleep deprived. I had poor relationships. My grades were suffering because I was working full-time and just a lot of bad things. And I didn't really enjoy the college experience, but I was always in pursuit of that American dream of making six figures. You know, that make we got to make $100,000 a year. That's like a, a six-figure six dream that unfortunately has been the same dream since the 1960s. 
they don't even take into account of inflation. So a hundred thousand dollars in 1960s would have been a dream job. Nowadays, it's very little money because of all the bills. We have SUVs that cost a hundred thousand dollars now, and they're not even the luxury ones. They're just a suburban or a Tahoe, and they're hundred thousand dollars. That's that's the American dream to make six figures. It should be the American dream should have been scaled to inflation. Maybe it's five hundred thousand a year is like the dream nowadays, but nobody talks about that. So when you go through that education. Any of you that are parents, you're saying this to the, your parents, you're, you're saying this to your kids, but you're thinking about, hey, you got to go be a doctor, a lawyer or engineer or something. They always give you like the five top paying bachelor degrees. And for me, that was engineering. I was a car guy. I liked airplanes, cars, anything mechanical. So that's what I did. I said, pursued that to potentially maybe work for the big three. My dream job would have been working for General Motors or Ford or Dodge designing the sports cars because that's what I was into. Well, I decided early on that, hey, I could stay in Houston and actually make double the money that the automotive industry paid just by staying in the oil and gas industry. So I already had that experience working in chemical refineries as a laborer, worked my way up through there, got a job as a project engineer and kind of was off the races. So here's the thing that I learned in my late 20s when I'm starting to climb through the corporate ranks. I already had about eight years of experience from working in the plants before the kids that graduated with me, right? And I knew that I could do a lot for my given age just from that background experience, but I got tired of being told, wait your turn, you gotta pay your dues, all these things, but all you're too young to be a project manager, nobody in history of our company, multi-billionaire companies ever been doing that in their twenties, it's, it's too high risk. And guys, I've been managing those kind of things on the back end for five years already, you know, as a junior project engineer. So I got tired of being told to wait your turn and that you had to pay your dues and that, Again, these are all these artificial ceilings that people create for you, right? And so I decided, okay, I need an external outlet to go challenge myself to be more creative, do things to create better results that I can get compensated based on performance rather than time, and maybe learn some things about business and accounting and financing. So I started my side businesses and I started the first ones that were building little widgets on my kitchen table when I get home from work. And those didn't scale very well because I can only build three or four of those a night and make 25, 30 bucks each of those. So yeah, it was better than waiting tables, which I did for two years with an engineering degree while working engineering job, but it didn't scale like an actual business. And so when we launched LS1 Tech in 2001, it was a, I just wanted to build a cool place for car guys to hang out on the internet and talk about cars. And it was never intended to make millions of dollars. It was just, I wanted a really cool place to hang out. I was learning at that time how to build web pages by reading books and just teaching myself HTML and photography and Photoshop. And I was having fun. I was being creative, doing my creative outlet while I had my job. And within 10 months, that job was that little business that we created was making about $10,000 a month profit, which was more than my salary at that time. It was an entry level job I had and it just continued to grow. And, you know, when we started to get in the later years of that business, we were making about 400,000 a year profit from something that was literally taking about 15 minutes a day. So in that period of time between 2001 and probably around 2004, I started to realize that time is not equal to money, even though that's something that we always get programmed with our entire childhood and our teens and our twenties. Time is money. Money's time. Trade your time, get some money. If you want more money, go work overtime. If you want more money, go get a second job or a third job. If you want, there's always time and money. And when you start to get an entrepreneurship, you realize like, Hey, I woke up last night and there was, $3,000 in my bank account that wasn't there before I went to bed. Like, how did I get paid while I was asleep? How did I get paid while I was on vacation? How did I get paid when I was doing nothing? Because time is not equal to money.
money's not equal time. They're equal on their own, but not together. And you start to realize like, dude, this is a entire world is basically my potential customer base. And I can get paid while I'm on vacation and I don't have to take time off. It's like, it's crazy when you start to realize that what you believe so long, it's destroyed. And so that just kind of continued to grow. We, although it was a side business, I took it very serious and I had a team and had about 75 people on staff and they were just doing all the things for me because my career was also very demanding at that time. And a lot of times I was working offshore or international, didn't always know what time zone I'd be in or what, if I even had internet, sometimes I'd be in Africa, there's no internet in those, those areas. So I was gone 20, 30 days at a time and my business still had to make profit in the background. So I got really good at using my processes and systems, which I learned in corporate. There's your touched on that, right? That, hey, if I can write these processes, I can teach other people to do them in my absence, pay them a, a fair wage to do these kind of things when I'm not around. And when I get back, the business will still be operating and I won't have to be a part of that, which I didn't understand that this was increasing the valuation of the company when you can do that, when you can remove right. I didn't know that. I didn't know about EBITDA and I didn't, I didn't know about the multiples and all these kind of things. I was just building something that was making money. It was fun. I enjoyed it. It was a creative outlet. I could, got to be a leader, built hundreds of thousands of members. It's like, this is kind of cool. We're in tied up with the media. We're going on TV shows, like very interesting life in that time frame. But when we sold the company and they made the first offer, it was a lot bigger than I thought it was because I didn't understand valuation. See, entrepreneurship is something you learn as you go. Most people think they need to learn everything before they start. No, and that's a great point that it is it is a journey, right? And um, some of us learn those skills earlier than others. But uh, being an entrepreneur myself, um, there's so much that you said in there that I could relate to. And, um, and, and that's the other thing I wanted to chat with you about, Tony, is that there's, again, so many people out there that are either hesitant to start a side business because it might, they think, interfere with their day job. Um, but once you get a taste of it and, 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 and do something that you love, something that is your passion, it can actually help in your day job. And I just wanted to ask if that's something that, that you found. Um, my latest book, coincidentally, is uh, called Love Your Job, Crush Your Side Hustle. So it's something I've been toggling for uh, about 10 years, 10, 12 years now. Um, so we're, we're on a very similar wavelength in there. But I am curious to, to see what you think about uh, that with entrepreneurs that are either just starting out or those who are getting to that level where they're starting to say, OK, this is actually real. And this I have my systems going and and, and this could be something that I you know, could potentially even sell. You know, this is the things that you don't understand while you're going through this, but you're going to relate to this. When you have external sources of income, whether that's a side hustle or investments or just something that's making, let's say, almost or more than what your salary is, you're going to have a lot more sense of freedom and you're going to be less able to be just controlled by fear. And where I'm going with that is I've had good supervisors and I've had bad supervisors bad ones would try to rule you with fear of your job or employment or that promotion you're going to miss out on. And hey, if you don't go do this, like we're going to remember that. Like there's a lot of passive aggressive politics that goes on in a corporate job. And I've seen that at every level. It doesn't go away. Sometimes actually I was right under vice president. I would have been executive path right there. 
and you start to see even at the highest levels there's still corporate games well when you have the confidence and understand that you actually literally get to walk around your cubicle farm or your office structure with an invisible backpack <laughs> a parachute that if you didn't like how it how they're doing things or trading you you could just be like i'm going to pull the chute and jump and see you guys later like i don't need you like you think i need you and that's not being cocky but it's understanding that you have more leverage than they think you do and sometimes these supervisors they don't know your backstory or what's going on but you have an air of confidence about you because you've created a result sometimes 10 times bigger than what the person supervising you even can comprehend but they still try to use these little mind manipulation games and, and try to control you or keep you under their thumb. And and you see the other coworkers suffering from this because they accept it. They tolerate, you get what you tolerate and they're living under that fear and they don't like the boss and all these kind of things because they feel like they're at a different tier level and that they got to look up to this person and they control their life. And in many situations, I that's the case. It is the case because they control you. You have less leverage, you have less confidence. And I'll give you a really good story on that because there was one company I worked for, Fortune 10 company, top level company. And the first week I was there, the supervisor was new to being that role and she was micromanaging everybody, right? And she was maybe a couple of years older than me and we had just met, so I get it. She didn't really know me and she doesn't have a lot of trust, but I just see her micromanaging everybody in the area. And hey, what, what about that thing? You got that thing done? You got that thing done? Hey, are you still working on the thing? Even though these people had already agreed to what they were going to deliver, when they were going to deliver it, and what quality expectations they were going to deliver. Like it was all agreed upon, but she was the micromanager, was always asking for updates, even though it wasn't even near the due date, right? And so I let that go on for about two weeks. And then finally, as she, she asked me, she kept micromanaging me something that was several days away from me even completing it. And I said, hey, do you mind us if we have a closed door conversation? And she's like, oh, she was like one of those. Like, yeah, I said, OK. So re respectfully, I said, hey, you can trust me. I'm going to deliver exactly what I told you. I'm very solid in that regard. You read my resume. You know all my contacts. You've seen what I've done but I don't operate in this mode of being micromanaged. So if I, if I tell you I'm gonna do something, it's going to be done at this level, probably better than you expect. And usually it's gonna be early. So can we agree on that? She goes, okay. I said, so here's the next thing. If you continue to manage me this way, I will resign today. And her jaw kind of dropped. She's like, well, I can't have that. I mean, I, I, she didn't think that she was doing enough to make me wanna quit, but I let her know that if you're going to continue, I'm giving you the option that I'll just resign today. And there was no yelling or drama or emotion. And she said, okay, I'll, I'll give you a chance. I won't do that. So cool. So that project went on for almost three years. And she mm -hmm. was always our supervisor. She abused everybody else on the team, but I got away with what I wanted because she knew that I was at a different level and that I asserted myself and I didn't tolerate that from her. And I had to deliver the results, like I said. See, had I gone below what I had promised, then you know what I gave, I would have give her the ammo to blast at me. But you have to tolerate what you want and you're not gonna have that confidence if you don't have the leverage because I could have just left any time and still been making the same money or found another career, another role that would have paid me the same, gave me the same benefits. So. You have to build this leverage. And that's that's the beauty of the thing that most people don't understand from entrepreneurship and corporate is that you gain confidence and leverage that you created from your own results, your own performance that you get to take over into the employment side as well. Man, Tony, that is a game changer. And 
Look, again, I know so many people can relate to that story where they are being micromanaged and it's affecting their day to day. It affects their sleep. It affects everything that they do. So again, thank you for dropping so much gold in, in that story. Um, have a lot to get to here. So I'd like to move on um, and talk about one of the things you're, you know, I've observed that you're great at is building communities. You have a knack for building communities. Everything that I know that you do is around community. And I want to know if that's intentional or is that uh, an after effect of something that you just love to do? I definitely get the leadership tenacity and admiration from watching my dad grow up. I mean, he was always a leader of his friend circles. I was, even as a kid, I've always been the person that always was the, the friend circle leader, right? And I don't know if that was intentional. I do think that there's some kind of an interest. You have to be the kind of person that wants to be the coach, the mentor, the person that puts yourself in that level of that situation. And even as a kid, I remember being a skateboarder and a BMX biker. I would, I would go learn a trick and I would practice it over and over and over until I could master it over and over and over. And then I couldn't wait to teach my friends how to do that. Huh. Right. So it's all about like pushing yourself, getting the result, repeatable result. And then, and then the, you're not done. You're not successful in terms of the succession plan. If I can't teach people what I know or what I do, then that's kind of like the tip of the iceberg if I'm skipping that. Right. So I've always been that coach in corporate. I've always mentored people, even though if that wasn't my roles and responsibilities, I just see potential in other people that they don't see for themselves. So that's who I am as an individual. I get that not everybody's like that. But even to this day, I was actually having dinner with my dad last night. He's retired. He's bored. He's still the director of a Harley Davidson group, you know, like a writing group here in the Houston area. Like he volunteered to do that. So even though he's retired and he was in leadership roles, he's still finding avenues to just be a leader. And that's, I think that's important, right? So he's always been that way. He's consistent. And you don't always know what that means. Like, what does it take to be a leader? And you make a lot of mistakes, right? And so for me, the philosophy on growing communities over 20 years, really, the massive sizes, I mean, 300,000, 280,000, I'm going to grow the 365 driven one to millions of people. I've already visioned that. It's going to take years. I'm not in a hurry. I'm not trying to like run ads and boost the numbers and feel like, oh, I'm super awesome because I got a million person community or a million followers. I'm not like that. I understand that there's a difference between being a celebrity and an influencer, and there's a difference between like being a community leader, right? Mm -hmm. The influencer model is what we see on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok, where they got a million followers, right? And they're standing on the top of the hill and they got their arms, ah, I got a million followers. I'm at the top of this hill. They're all here because I'm just super awesome. And it's a one-way conversation because you're at the top and you're broadcasting your message down and there's not a two-way conversation unless there's someone that knows you or they're in your DMs and they kind of have a little bit of a relationship with you. But it's largely one-way conversation and it's based on ego, right? Being on the top of the mountain. And those kind of people tend to burn out. They don't really last that long, right? Because they don't build a strong enough community. And I see a lot of them mistakenly call their followers a community, right? They give them a little name like, oh, I'm going to call them the 360 Drivenites or, you know, but that's not a community just because they're your followers and you gave them a cute name, right? Because you're not having a conversation with these people, right? So the difference between what they do and what I've always done is that 
I'm there at the bottom. If you're going to visualize it, it's, it's an upside down mountain. The peaks on the ground. I'm on the bottom with my arms still up, but I'm holding this upside down mountain and I'm supporting the community because it's not about me. I've always been approachable. I've always been embedded within my community. I've always been Tony, not king of the world, super community, boss, badass. Like it's, I'm just in the community and people know who the owner is. They respect that. They know who's the leader, but you don't have to assert yourself and like make it all about you. So the way you make a strong community is that it's my duty or my obligation to make sure that I facilitate opportunities for each and every member of my community to become best friends, not best friends with me. They could become best friends with me, but my job is to facilitate the bonds between them. And to do that, you have events like in the racing scene, I would have racing events all around the country and all the hotbeds of racing and automotive performance. We'd travel around and I'd get people off of their keyboards and their screens and they would come to the track and they would meet each other. They'd shake hands. They'd get to actually know their real names instead of their screen names. And then they left their becoming lifelong friends. Guys, that was 20 years ago. I've, I've been parts of marriages and best friends and things like for 20 years, guys. So. If I can build the strong bonds between them and have multi-way conversation where I communicate with them, they communicate with me, they communicate with each other. It's links between everybody in my community. That's that's how you build a strong community. And the influencer space, people that are buying fake followers and doing all these fake flexes, they don't get that because they're not focused on the community. They're focused on themselves. Wow, that's awesome. And just to take it a little further, Tony, again, I'm trying to put myself in the position of the listener as I'm listening to you talk. Uh, one of the follow-up questions I would have is, okay, so where do I start? Like, how do I, how do I even start to build a community? How do I get member number one and then five and then 25 and then 100? It does start small. I mean, even with 365 Driven, here's how I started this group. It's about 4,000 people right now. I actually was writing my book and I said on my Facebook timeline, just my normal timeline, probably had about 1500 friends, you know, on, on there. I said, Hey guys, I'm writing a book about business entrepreneurship. How many of you would be interested in joining a private Facebook group to maybe talk about this topic? And then it'll be like kind of a, like a sounding board for my book while I'm writing this, you know, I'll give you some samples and we can shoot ideas and I'll try to capture all the stuff in the book. So, I thought maybe 10 people would raise their hand and go, oh, that's cool. Like, I'll be a part of that. Had 40, wow. 40 people. And half of them didn't own a business, but they wanted to or they were curious about it. So they just wanted to be involved in that process. Like, cool. So I created a little Facebook group, 365 Driven Entrepreneurs. It's still there. 40 people that I was in my friends list, not necessarily good friends. Maybe four or five of them were friends, but the rest of them were interest people. And I cultivated that group just from that. That's as small as it gets, right? And I, I provided value. I said, hey guys, here's chapter three. And I wrote this paragraph. What do you guys think? I would just give them little pieces of it to get, get some feedback because I actually wanted to write a good book. And then, and I said, hey, if I'm writing this book, what questions would you like answered in this book? If I could answer your questions about starting your first business, what are the questions you have? And people wrote these answers and, and then, they, they started to see this project was pretty cool. They would invite some of their friends and see, that's another trick I have is I, at first I would say, Hey, if you like what you're seeing, like invite your friends, just kind of general, right? Nobody was inviting their friends. It's like, well, that's not really working. And then I came across someone and I was talking about 
being specific with your requests. And, and I said, just be really specific with your request and see if there's a reaction difference. It's like, okay. Hey guys, if you like what you're seeing, invite three of your friends. They started inviting three of their friends three wow. at a time, three at a time. And the beauty of people inviting their friends to a group is it's almost like a filtering buffer, which keeps the trash out because nobody's going to invite trash right. into the group under their own name. Because if you invite trash, they kind of associate with you, it kind of hurts your reputation. So I built a 4,000 person group just by inviting people and having them invite their friends. Man, it kind of just grows and grows and grows and grows that way. And we're not really focused on the growth. We want to create value and make sure there's some interactive conversations. And the other thing, even with my large communities, I don't allow the negative people, like people that were just in there to be combative and like make fun of people and ridicule or antagonize people or say, why you ask such a stupid question? Just go use Google. Like those people I never allowed in any of my communities because I realized that as a community leader, I had to make sure that I had a safe place for them to participate because when you allow trash talkers or trolls or keyboard warriors or people that make violent threats and things like that to exist in your community, what happens is you drive away the quality people. The quality people will just hang out in the shadows, watch all this drama going on. They're like, dude, I'm not sticking my foot in that. Look at these idiots in this group. So as a community leader, you're actually shooting yourself in the literal foot by allowing negative people to remain. And they're cancerous within your community, just like they are within your organization because cancer spreads and negative and toxicity spreads really fast. And the good people, the people that want to participate, looking at you like an ineffective, weak leader, because they're asking themselves, why isn't Tony getting rid of these people? Why isn't Tony firing these negative people from the job? They're making everybody here miserable. Like if they would just fire, like if you have those kind of people in your organization or your community and you're allowing them to live there and hang out there, you're looking at as a weak, ineffective leader. I hate to tell you. So you got to take care of that problem. Well, so smart. And look, I, you know, that that's something that maybe people don't think about when they take on a project like this. This is a responsibility of it. You, you, you don't want to start a group for it to get to that place. So to be thinking about those things right from the very beginning is super smart. Thanks for sharing, because that that is your intellectual property that you've built uh, over time. And I know it'll help a lot of people on the other side. Um, so, Tony, let's go back to 2015. You had a near-death experience um, when you were racing cars. Can you tell us about that story? Take us back to that time and how you made it through. Yeah, I used to work for magazines and automotive media just as a, as a contributing editor, doing how-tos and track testing and things like that. So I've always had a, a history of doing really well at the tracks, whether it's road course or the drag strips. I've set some records and different types of vehicles, but I happened to be at the track here in Houston as a drag strip. And there was a shop there with a twin turbo Dodge Viper, about a thousand horsepower. And they were trying to set a new national record with it. I have a, I have a couple of vehicles like that myself. I'm very familiar with driving them at that power level. And so they threw me the keys to try to go get a good number for them. And it would have been good for media and marketing and things like that. So I'm in an unfamiliar car. It's, it's a shop car and launched really well. The car was on a good number. I felt like it was going to be a record pass. And then about top of third gear, at 130 miles per hour, something in the right rear suspension broke and the car started getting out of line. And here's the thing is that in that moment, 
I felt a little bit of fear, but I've been in cars with that kind of power and adrenaline rush is kind of going and you go, I can save this. I can kind of keep it straight. It's, it's going to be okay. And as I was thinking that the car was starting to move closer and closer to the right side wall. I was in the right side lane and I was trying to keep it off the wall, but the car was determined it was going to the right and it started grazing that wall. And now what I had is a, a little bit of fear was replaced with anger and disappointment in myself mostly because here I am trusted with this hundred thousand dollar plus car and it's grazing the wall and scratching the paint. And, and, you know, if the worst thing is that, then I can slow down. It's still a safe, you know, accident. And I was a little disappointed in myself, you know, for damaging their car. And as I started to slow down and come off of that wall, then I realized what the damage actually was. And that right rear suspension being that type of suspension car, it actually started to steer the rear wheel kicked out kind of like when you're pushing a shopping cart backwards and you don't really have good control of it. Well, my steering wheel was going straight, but the car was now going hard left. And now I'm looking at the other concrete wall in the left lane and approaching that 130 miles per hour. And in that moment, I really thought I was going to die. So here's the weird thing about that. So you heard my emotional part. We started out with fear, then it became anger and disappointment. And now I'm looking at a wall doing quick math in my head that, hey, I'm about to hit a concrete wall on a two door sports car at 130 miles per hour. And I got really bad odds of surviving this. And so in that moment, I actually said to myself, well, here I go. And that felt like an eternity, guys, before, before I hit that wall. But here's the overwhelming sense that I felt was peacefulness. I felt peacefulness overcome me. Warm, loving peacefulness as I was approaching this wall. I didn't have fear. I didn't see my life flash before my eyes or anything crazy like that. I just, I just remember feeling like, hey, it's peaceful. I'm okay with this. Here I go. And of course, impact hits, airbag deploys. It's dark on that side of the track. It's late at night. The light and tears flashing. There's powdery smoke everywhere. I hear glass breaking. I hear metal coming apart. I hear noises, just terrible noises, the engine roaring and the car sliding. And I, and I just remember surviving the impact and just being focused on just staying conscious. I need to stay awake. Car sliding. And it felt like it was taking forever to come to stop. I just remember like, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. I got to get out of the car because through training, we usually don't die from the impact. We die from the fire. I mean, when you're spilling gasoline, oil, brake fluid, transmission fluid, all of those are flammable. All it takes is one spark. And now that entire car being engulfed in flames. So I knew I was conscious. I didn't know if I was injured or anything. I just remember sliding and just seeing all this crap and thinking, stay awake. So the car finally came to a stop. I had to pry the door open because I hit that side and I got out and there's wheels off the car. Every single panel on this car was damaged. The front of the car was smashed in all the way up to the windshield. And I stood there and I was, I took my helmet off and I was just really thinking and I still felt really peaceful in that moment. And I could hear the ambulance coming up from the far end of the track. I could hear people sprinting up the track, yelling. I could hear my friends on four wheelers like coming up and and I was just standing there with my helmet off looking at the damage and, and they put me in the back of the ambulance and the paramedic was inspecting me and checking my vitals and asking me a bunch of questions to see if I had a concussion. And I was answering things really clearly and I knew who I was and what day it was and what happened and everything and asking about history. I understood everything. And after she was done asking me those questions, I'm sitting in the back of the ambulance. I'm looking at the wreckage right out the door and, and she says, can I tell you something that's really unusual? And I was thinking, oh man, here it goes. It's going to be bad news, right? And she, all she said was that you're remarkably peaceful for someone who's just had a major accident. People crash here every night. 
They usually have the adrenaline shakes, the shortness of breath, the heart elevated heart rate, like you're remarkably calm. And she's never seen that before. And I said, I am calm. And I still remember this just like it was yesterday, even that was 2015. But I was, I was looking at that wreckage. What I was really thinking to myself was, why am I still here? I thought I was going to die. And I still felt that peacefulness that I felt as I was approaching the wall. And the next logical question is like, well, what if I would have died? And then you start to think about how would I have been remembered had I died right there? And then the next question is, did I do enough in my life? Did I create enough impact? Or if I would have died right there, had I created enough impact? And you guys heard the clues earlier in this episode when I told you I'm very driven and competitive and try to push myself. Well, it was like this big flashing neon light that no, I wasn't doing nearly enough. Although I had contributed to my family and my closest friends and people that were colleagues in my center and former staff members that I've helped build seven and eight and nine figure companies. I've built some really successful friends, but I didn't have external impact. If you weren't in my proximity, you didn't have access to that knowledge of my love or my discipline or my intention. And so I realized in that moment that I hadn't done enough with my life. I would have been remembered as nice, rich guy with cool cars, because all I had to do was go look for evidence of friends that had passed away in recent years from similar situations. And it was like, it was so-and-so was a nice guy. So-and-so cool car. So-and-so was hope they're racing upstairs with the big man. It was always these superficial things. And I get that if you're a dirt bag, you probably would aspire to be remembered as a nice guy with cool cars that was financially successful, but as someone that's competitive, it wasn't enough. And that's when I decided that I needed to go do something about that. And I didn't know what that meant. So a month later, I, I, I was out of my corporate career and I decided not to ever go back to that corporate career. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I needed to make, I needed to make impact. And I'd spent the next two years searching for that, reading books and talking to people. And, you know, and that's when I decided in 2017 that the best way I'm going to make impact, it wasn't by creating a nonprofit or going on a monk mission or all these different avenues. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to go create impact, but the best way for me personally to make impact was to teach people confidence and business principles because if i'm going to impact millions of people and i firmly believe that i will impact generational legacy of millions of people the way i do that is through communicating through business a passion of mine i ever since i was a kid i loved business and cars well everybody up until that point knew about my car stuff and then after that point i said well i'm going to teach them how i got these cars and how to get their own and teach them the business principles that I love because I was the kid that would read hot rod magazine. I'd read Forbes magazine. <laughs> I know that's really odd, but when you're growing up broke and you don't have any money and you're working and pushing lawnmowers and raking leaves and walking dogs and, and age 12, I didn't have money. So I go to the magazine rack as a kid in my mom's grocery shop and I'd read my car magazines. Cause that's what I love. But I always saw these, corner of this shelf that was talking about money and millions and stuff like that. So maybe if I start reading some of those, I'll understand maybe money. I'll understand money. So I was, I was that 12, 13 year old that was reading entrepreneur and Forbes and success. I didn't know what it meant, but within a year of reading cover to cover, even the ads, I started to understand the terminology and I started to be able to put the puzzles together and what all this means and what not to do. And what a tax is and what a stock is and what profit means. And so I learned all these things as a kid because I didn't have money. And I figured that that was the best way for me to go learn how to do that. <laughs> wow. That story was perhaps the best story shared 
on the show. And I don't say that lightly. So thank you for that. Tony, I, it's, it's your story is becoming more clear to me, you know, in this moment, I think about 365 driven, but as I start to connect your dots backwards, it makes sense. I mean, every little thing we've talked about today leads up to today. But what I love about it is we all have that in us, right? Everything that we've lived over the course of our lives have gotten us to where we are today. But that doesn't mean it's over. You know, you talked about your dad and still making impact by having his community as being retired. So we're ne it's never too late. But making that impact takes someone getting out of their comfort zone and taking action. So that's what I've seen, you know, with your story connecting your dots backwards. But if you could bring us full circle to 2017, now you've, you've figured it out, okay, this is what I'm doing, 365 driven. And I think I know what it means, but I'd love to ask you, does it mean being driven all year round? Absolutely, and that's, it's a marketing thing for me. I'm very good on branding and marketing and positioning, and I, I build mantras. I want people to wear a logo and understand what it means. So I think a lot of times, People name companies that are vague and, and they don't have that mantra. If I'm a community builder, I want people to understand like, hey, I am 365 driven. And if I were to walk up to you or any stranger on the street and I ask them, hey, are you 365 driven? I guarantee nine times out of 10, they're going to know what that means. Yeah. And that's the beauty of when you build a brand that people can stand behind. It speaks for them, right? They put the sticker on their car. They wear the shirt. They show up. They tell people that's who they are. It becomes part of their identity. So yeah, this, it's all baked into that name. Man. So one of the other things I'd love to chat about for a few minutes is your book. It sounds like you had some nice interaction while you were actually writing your book. You formed your community. You were getting uh, feedback. What was the process like of, of actually writing your first book? I help people write their first book. So it's something I'm very passionate about. I'm just curious from the standpoint of being an entrepreneur, what was it like for you to write your first book and how did that community, you know, impact the result? It was scary. I'll tell you that the idea for my book was probably rattling around in my skull for about five years before I actually sat down in front of a keyboard and typed the first word. And it's because we're always fearful of what people are going to say or think about us, right? My close friends and family and things like that, they understand I was successful. People that were part of that community, they understand I was successful. They can see evidence of that everywhere. But it felt really egotistical to think that I'm gonna write a book and it's gonna become a bestseller and then I'm gonna teach people how to make millions of dollars. Like it sounds really arrogant and it sounds like it sounds like garbage. Like there's so much personal development trash out there right now that honestly that five year period was probably me avoiding being in that scene because I've seen that there's some definitely some legit teachers, but I would say about 75% of it's garbage. People who have never accomplished things that are trying to position themselves and maybe the, the crap that they're selling is what made them successful, but they've never achieved anything before that. I started to read more personal development books in that time. I finished about a book a week still. And sometimes I would even read New York Times bestselling books that I thought like these were, this is an amazing book. I needed to learn more about this writer. Like, what did they accomplish before this book? And sometimes the story's awesome, but sometimes the story's really unfortunate. And you realize that that book was the only reason they became successful because they had learned from somebody else, but they had never applied that or got results in what they're teaching. 
So I didn't want to be in that space for a long time because I didn't want to be judged, right? And so writing that book was like, after that accident, I realized that that's going to be the easiest way for me to get what's in my head out to, I used to say thousands of people because I didn't think really big of my, my story and things like that. And here's the thing I really started admitting in more recent interviews is that I hate to say it this way, but I can't think of a better way to say it. When I wrote that book, it was a, it was a cowardly effort for me to take my knowledge and put it out there to the world. And I call it cowardly because I didn't think that it was going to end up on me being on TV or stages or being in front of people. It was still a way for me to put what's in there, have a somewhat private life. And if it didn't do good, no big deal. And if it did good, like, cool, you know, like I kind of, I was kind of like thinking that cause I was still like bargaining my results down because I didn't want to let myself down. So I tried to figure out what's the easiest way. There's that easiest thing that goes back to the, the question you asked me at the beginning of the show. You know, if good isn't good, isn't good enough, if better is possible. Well, I, I did good enough writing that book. Better would have been, hey, go train yourself to become a speaker, go get on stages, get on more shows, create a podcast, like things that I've done. Now, I've got a show with over 200 episodes. We just crossed year three. And this was all a sequence of things I had to become to make, like you said, myself uncomfortable along that journey to become the person that I envisioned a few years ago. I, I am that person that I envisioned a few years ago but I was not always this person. I didn't have the confidence to speak like I speak or be on camera or any of that kind of stuff. I had to go grow and become that person. I, I wrote this book and as my editor's going through chapter by chapter, he's telling me, man, this is great content. I can tell you're putting a lot of thought. Hey, thank you, man. He's like, and probably about like chapter four, he's like, hey, I bet people are gonna wanna interview you. I bet you could be on podcast or TV or stages and, and and I had stage fright and I had insecurities and I didn't like that. And I was like, damn it. Like the whole thing I was trying to avoid by writing a book is punching me in the face here again. And so at that moment, I was like, I got to go do something about this. So while I was writing the book, I joined Toastmasters, hired a speaking coach. They told me to do videos. They taught me how to do videos and I would just do them. And I sucked at it. And I understood that I sucked, but it was the best I could literally do. I used to do these videos in the truck of my, in the cab of my truck. I would do 10 takes with my phone and they were all embarrassing to me. And if anybody walked by like an aisle away, I would put the phone down and I'd be embarrassed. Like that's how bad it was with this, this stage fright. Right. And I just knew that, Hey, I'm willing to suck at things and be a beginner at things. And I know that I, I, I it's going to serve my purpose. This is why I'm doing this. But I wanted to make sure that when that book came out, if it was well taken by readers and if it did well i needed to prepare myself to be the right person to carry what was in that book mm -hmm. right and so that's what i did and i and it was hard and my wife and some of my friends thought i was crazy and you know that my wife always believes in me we've been together almost 20 years now but she's like a little bit different than what you're used to you sure you want to do that you know but you know roger you have to go invest in yourself and you have to become that person that can carry your story it's not just about the book but yeah, the feedback for me is like I write, I let, I enjoy writing. You know, I used to write for the magazine. I enjoy that process. But one of the most common comments I get from my readers is that they feel like I'm having a conversation with them, just like I'm having a conversation with you right now. They, when they read the book, they say, hey, it feels like you're speaking to me. And here's a hack for that. I'll give you a tip as a, if you're writing a book. 
I wanted it to be conversational. I enjoy books like that. So I said, hey, I want to talk to them, not like I'm above them or their teacher. I, I wanted to talk to them like two friends having beers at a bar. They're asking me questions, like just like this podcast interview. And we're just sipping beer and we're having a conversation. That's how I wrote the book. And literally to put myself in that mode while I was writing it, sometimes I would go pour myself a beer. <laughs> and I, I would sip the beer while I was writing the book. And although I haven't drank a, an alcohol in almost a year now, just by discipline type test that I'm putting myself through, that's how I wrote the book. I put myself in that mode and I would type how I would say things or speak in that moment. So these are some good tips. I hope that your authors or your future authors can take with them. Love it. Love it. Love it, Tony. What would you say to entrepreneurs um, if they're thinking about writing a book? If they're in that same place you were, you know, the fear, you know, they've been thinking about it for years, because I believe we all have at least one book in us. What would you say the impact can be if they get that book out there for themselves, their career, their family, the diversity of income, all those things that come from writing book? Dude, it's powerful. That's your legacy. Your book will live longer than you. Remember that your book will live longer than you. What better way for your children or your grandchildren or your future family members to look back on the family tree and go, hey, who was that crazy aunt or uncle that achieved some things and what can I learn about them? And they can go find your book, right? And if you're building legacy, that's a good way to do it. Now, here's the caveat. Although we all have a story, really nobody cares about our story unless we can format that story to educate the listener or the reader. Right. Because everybody that comes to you as an author, like, hey, I'll, I want to write a book. I want to tell my story. And it sounds honorable because that's what we hear. Like you hear this. I hear, I want to tell my story. But the next question I ask is like, well, what is your story going to teach me? What is the main problem that you want to solve for the readers? The main problem can be interlaced with your story, but it can't be this chronological thing. Hey, I was born in 1972 and then, you know, I pooped my diapers by age three and I can't have this chronological like autobiography because I always say that your autobiography should not be until people recognize you walking in the sidewalk in public because those are the autobiographies that sell, right? But until then, you need to find a problem or a solution or something that you want to teach the world and then use your stories, your individual stories, not in chronological order, but your individual stories and your experiences to teach one lesson per chapter. You can just teach someone one lesson per chapter and the entire book solves one big problem that many people face. The more people, the better. You're going to have the hands on a successful book. Wow. Awesome advice, Tony. Awesome advice. So one of the things you're working on these days uh, with your wife is you're hosting in-person uh, mastermind events. And uh, I know you have one coming up, up. If you could tell us a little bit about you know, how this uh, came to be. And I know you have kind of a magic number of 50 people, 50 attendees. Why does that come into play? And why is that so important, not only to you, but to the group? I think this is more of a, a result of attending so many different business conventions and seminars and events for several years is that we all have complaints and we have things that people do well. When we go to events, we say, hey, they could have done that better. They could have, this was really exceptional. You start to piece together the goods and the bads. And for me, the smaller events were always better for building strong networks and communications. And it's really cool when 
we put these events on and we've already done two. We did one in Utah. We've done one in Montana. So we always try to make them a destination location, almost a vacation for entrepreneurs that you can business expense, which is pretty cool. So my wife and I, we like to travel. So we say, hey, if we bring our own party to the places we want to go, then it's going to be an even more fun, right? right? And so we always mix in a day of speaking. We bring in some incredible speakers. You and I have some mutual contacts that have spoke at my events. And then we have a day of exploring where we're at. You know, give you an example, we went to Zion National Park in Utah and we hiked the trails and we went up the narrows and we did all kinds of cool, like fitness challenge type things. And like, it's an experience, right? In Montana, we went whitewater rafting and we also hiked Glacier National Park and saw some amazing scenery and pushed each other and like camaraderie, like, let's go, let's go, we got this, you know? And so we always wanna mix in some kind of destination, some physical challenge and public speaking of the, the business experts that come out to speak at these events. And here's the beauty of that. When you go away from that event, let's say like the next few weeks, you start to see that these groups that have met first in person, they become lifelong friends. I'm, I'm not joking. They will become lifelong friends. They may not know this right now, right. you're only a year into it, but they will become lifelong friends because you start to see them interact on their social media with each other. You start to see them do business deals with each other. You start to see them hiring each other with their services and their products and getting wow. the recommendations. And it's just this powerful networking. I get to sit back and watch all this happen in real time. And it's happening exactly like the automotive communities that I've built, right? But it's just the entrepreneurship space. And so I understand that when you have fewer people, you can have more involved conversations because our events are typically three-day events. And so we got breakfasts and dinners and, and lunches and excursions and people hanging out by the bar, or hanging out by the pool, having really in-depth conversations because they're all there for the same reason. And it's amazing to just see how that kind of grows and grows and grows. And you know, when it becomes too big, you can't have as many conversations. There's more of an energy buzz at some of the bigger events, but there's less of a takeaway buzz. I mean, I got, to me, I want the fulfilling of the legacy that's going to create from from really strong bonds over time. So the other complaint as a speaker, I would go speak at these events. And when you come off stage they make you hide in the VIP room for only being accessible by people that paid extra to get VIP access, right? And I was like, well, that, that's kind of lame because there's a thousand people in this audience and I can only hang out with this 100 people that bought front row seats. Right. Like that's kind of lame for me as a speaker. I get that it's a financial thing that you're doing, but I'm still a human and I still want to go interact with the 900 other people that were sitting in the audience too. And so I'll go do that sometimes, but I always felt that that was kind of weird. Like, Hey, why are you keeping speakers, which are humans that still like to network and meet interesting people and get some feedback from what they just did on stage, keep it open. So I said, Hey, I'm going to have events. My speakers are not going to jet in speak and then catch the first jet out there. They're going to have to be a part of the event and hang out and people and be invested in, and actually learn and actually networks with these people. And it's cool because the people I invite, they are those kind of people. They say, hey, that is awesome. I've never been to an event where I get to go whitewater rafting with people. And you know, this next event we're doing in Tucson, Arizona, we're renting out a, a road course, a race car track for the day. So one full day will be high performance driving school with instructors and wow. 700 horsepower Dodge Hellcats. Oh, wow. So we have only 40 people for this event because that's literally how many cars are available for the school. So we have 40 people. The speakers are going to race. 
We're going to have timed autocross labs and road course. They're going to learn how to do high performance driving, skid pad control, all with instructors, safe environment. It's a school and it's an eight hour driving school that we're going to do as part of that event. It's included in the price. So when you think about these destination things and these bucket list things and talk about comfort zone, right? Like, I don't know anything about racing cars or driving fast. Like, well, you will after this, you'll actually be really good at it after going to a school for eight hours and learning the classroom side of it and then applying it out on the track. Imagine like the conversations you're going to have, just being able to have that kind of experience. Okay. Tony, you've been so generous with your time. I just have a, a couple of last questions before I let you go. And uh, the first one is tell us about your relationship with David Breyer. <laughs> the brand master himself. David and I met through LinkedIn. Because if anybody spends any amount of time on LinkedIn, you probably can't scroll more than three times before you see his beautiful face, right? And he makes such good content. He, he always got the titles and cool music and his funny you know, commentary, but he's just a fireball of energy. So we actually met up on LinkedIn and I had him on my show probably a little over a year ago. Great interview. We kind of kept in touch and and I said, hey, when I put these events together, people would kind of inquire, like usually the first 20 people that sign up, I'll say, hey, what do you guys want to learn? Like, I want to build this event around them, right? Oh, we want to learn about branding and marketing. I say, oh, cool. I, have no, I, have no, I know somebody that does that really well. So I asked David to come speak at the last event. He came out to Montana and you know, we got to bond and hang out and do fireside chats and have meals and drinks and that's the kind of relationship we want to build. The people that I bring to the event and the people that speak, I want to build relationships with them too, right? So it's strategic, but there's good takeaways for everybody. So yeah, David's awesome. And you know this already. He's a, he's a hell of a marketer and a brander. Calls himself as a branding guy, but he's a great marketer at the same time. 100%. No, and thanks for sharing that story. I saw several of the pictures from that event. It looked like an incredible event. And um, I hope people are going to look into your Tucson event uh, if it's not sold out already. So, wow, this has been a, a wonderful over an hour, Tony. Um, last question I have, and I, and I typically ask every guest this, um, is at the end of the day, you still have a ton of life to live. In my opinion, you're just getting started. You know, you haven't even hit 50 yet. So um, my question for you is at the end of the day, what do you want your legacy to be? You know, there was actually a, a good conversation. My very first interview that I ever did, not for my show, just interviewing anybody, was my grandmother who passed away about a month ago. She was 96, but I interviewed her on her 92nd birthday. I set up cameras and GoPros and put lapel mics on, and I came up with 10 questions that I just wanted to ask her because, you know, someone's that age, you want to capture their thoughts and their responses. And so the question that still stands out to me, and you touched on this with age and getting started, I said, I said, you know, I called her nanny. I said, Hey, nanny, your 92nd birthday at that time I said, at what age did you feel old? And she answered right away. She didn't even hesitate like sixties, sixties. I feel, I felt old. Me and your grandpa, we just felt old at sixties. And I said, you realize that was over 30 years ago. What do you think now? that you're in your nineties. And she, that's the question she kind of had to stumble with a little bit. She's like, wow, I wasn't old at all. I could dance. I had, my friends were still alive. I was still working at hobbies. 
she named off a couple of you know, favorite pets. And so perspective is that when she was living in her 60s, she felt old and they started to think like they were old. But she realized that she lived another 36 years after thinking she was old. So imagine thinking that you're old for 36 years. And so that always teach that to people when they think that they're too old to start. You don't know if you're going to live to 100. Life expectancy keeps increasing every year. And, you know, for me, like legacy doesn't have to begin at any age. But always ask yourself in this moment, if you were to die today, and I think about that, this is like a, a stoicism type thing, memento mori. You could live life, you could leave life right now, today. And if that were to happen, how would people remember you? And if you can't answer that without crying or actually feeling emotional, you probably haven't put enough thought into that. When you really start to think about who is your legacy and what are you actually achieving and understanding that it has to extend further than your family. Everybody on this planet has more potential than saying, well, I just want to make sure I provide for my kids and my family. Because that is your duty. That's not your legacy. That's your job as a parent, as a guardian. That's your job. That's not your legacy. Your legacy has far more impact, but you were in that same mode as me not believing what's possible. So you need to challenge yourself. If you were to pass away today, how would you be remembered? Sit with yourself and think about that over time. And then understand that you can do something about that. It's not the answer that you really want. You could do something about that. But you got to start today because tomorrow is not guaranteed. It's never guaranteed. I could have died in that accident in 2015 and everything I've been doing for the last four years would have never existed. And I guarantee you from the messages and the results and the people that I've touched, I've changed lives, thousands of lives that would have never happened. And I've just been stuck in that corporate job, thinking too small, worried about what other people are going to think about me, being afraid to fail, all these things that hold me back. So you got to think about what is it that you want to create for your legacy and understand that it is possible. Whatever you dream, no matter how big it is possible for you, but you got to go do that, man. You got to start today. Wow, Tony, uh, you have impacted thousands of lives, millions more to come in your words. Uh, welcome to the American Real family. If people want to reach out to you, what is the best way for them to connect to Tony Watley? I appreciate that opportunity, Roger. And, uh, first, I'll say that I would like to acknowledge you. You've given a great interview and questions had some really good depth and you're very comforting. I'll give you that. You're, you're very comforting. You make people very, feel very comfortable. And thank I you. I just wanted to point that out. But for the opportunity, I thank you. It's my website's 365driven.com. And anybody that's watching this or listening to this, just go check it out. I try to keep it in one place. It's podcast experts, we say, right? Yeah. 365driven.com. You'll find everything about me and all the things I work on over there. Awesome. 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 Tony Watley, great to connect with you today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And we cannot wait to watch what's yet to come. Thank you, Roger. Thanks for tuning into American Real. Be sure to visit our website, AmericanReal.tv, or search for us on iTunes or YouTube for past episodes. While you're there, please rate us or leave us a review as that helps others find our show. I am truly grateful and appreciate all of your support. If you'd like to be part of our inner circle or want one-on-one -on -one coaching, check out the American Real Learning Academy where we have self-help groups and courses so you can build the best you. We also have a new Facebook group where you can connect with high achievers from around the world. 
If you want to go even further, maybe you're determined to write your own book or launch your own podcast, contact me today to see if we could help. You can reach me through Instagram or Facebook or email me directly at roger at americanreal.tv. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week.